Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Robert, and we're the Film Flamers. Boldly going where we have, haven't gone before, I think, right? This is our first space horror film to cover? I believe so. That's right. Unless you count our Annabelle sequel ideas. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's for, I forgot that you sent Annabelle into space on that one. <laughs> Sunshine is one of Chris's favorite movies, right? Science fiction or horror, uh, I imagine? This is probably what, up there with my uh, top 10 horror sci-fis, yeah. Yeah, and I this was my first time to view this movie for the podcast, so... I know that he's been trying to get me to watch it for many years. Yeah. And he finally got his wish. So Sunshine is a 2007 science fiction thriller film directed by Danny Boyle, of course, of Train Spotting, 28 Days Later, and Slumdog Millionaire, and 127 Hours, and Steve Jobs. He's done a lot. And everything else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's adapted from a screenplay written by Alex Garland called The Voice of Generation X behind the novel The Beach. And, of course, the screenplays are films like 28 Days Later and Dread, and he later directed the films Ex Machina and Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Both of those movies are actually very, very good, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, I, I've actually not seen Annihilation, but I have seen Ex Machina, and I thought that was an amazing directorial debut. Yeah, I was, I was, that year that it came out, I was like shocked that there weren't any more Oscar nominations for that movie. I thought it was going to just reap them all in. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, Sunshine takes place in the year 2057 and follows a group of astronauts on a dangerous mission to reignite the dying sun. Mm-hmm. The ensemble cast features Killian Murphy, Chris Evans, Rose Byrne, Michelle Yeoh, Cliff Curtis, Troy Garrity, uh, Hiroyuki Sonata, and Benedict Wong. Wow, you said that really well. (laughs) I actually had to... I actually had to look it up, like how to pronounce it first. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I probably still butchered it, but no, this is an amazing ensemble cast in uh, yeah, this film. Yeah. Quite. I had no idea. The number of like big name actors who were in this movie when we started watching it, I was just like, oh, I know that person. I know that person and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Benedict Wong has been in like five or six like space movies. I think he was in The Martian and he's been in a couple others too. Like he's... Well, and the amazing horror cred behind these actors, too. So we all know that Killian Murphy from, you know, 28 Days Later and like Red Eye and things. Rose Byrne is the mother in the Insidious movies. And um, Cliff Curtis played one of the lead roles in Fear the Walking Dead. So the spinoff of The Walking Dead. Yeah. And Rose Byrne was also in, I think, all those uh, X-Men movies, the new the new class or whatever, first class. Was she really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. She plays Moira McTaggart. Uh, the film score, which I am in love with for this movie, it was a joint composition by the electronic band Underworld and, of course, film composer John Murphy, and has since appeared in so many trailers, like from The Walking Dead all the way to like Ready Player One. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's the Adagio in D minor uh, Canada's Death Part 2 track, which they always use. Adagio in D minor? That sounds so fancy. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's fairly epic sounding, you know, and yeah. So it's very trailer friendly, I guess. It is a good score. So without further ado, let the sun shine in. Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. We have a payload to deliver to the heart of our nearest star. Because that star is dying, and if it dies, we die. Eight astronauts strapped to the back of a bomb. Our purpose, to create a star within a star. 
is nothing, literally nothing more important than completing our mission. End of story. Everything about the delivery and effectiveness of that payload is entirely theoretical. Simply put, we don't know if it's going to work. Let me guess. The surface of the sun? Only dream I ever had. Every time I shut my eyes, it's always the same. In 2056, the sun is dying and the Earth is freezing. A crew of eight pilot a colossal nuclear bomb the size of Manhattan aboard the spaceship Icarus II, with the intent to jumpstart the sun and return to Earth. As they slingshot past Mercury, Icarus II discovers the distress beacon of the Icarus I, the first ship to attempt a similar mission which disappeared seven years earlier. Is that the best name for a ship heading toward the sun? I mean... <laughs> oh yeah, I have notes on that later. Yeah, it's pretty morbid. Yeah. Reasoning that two bombs have a better chance of success than one, physicist Kappa, played by Killian Murphy, recommends Captain Canada, played by Hiroyuki Sonata, change course and commandeer Icarus 1. Mace, played by Chris Evans, the ship's engineer, opposes the deviation as risky. Navigator Trey, played by Benedict Wong, calculates and implements a trajectory to intercept Icarus-1, but forgets to realign the shields that protect the ship from the sun, causing damage to four shield panels. Canada and Kappa embark on a spacewalk to make repairs, assisted by pilot Cassie, played by Rose Byrne, who angles the damaged portion of the ship away from the sun. As expected, this allows the sun to destroy the protruding communications tower, however, reflected light also destroys the ship's oxygen garden and oxygen reserves, to the absolute horror of botanist Corazon, played by Michelle Yeoh. As Icarus II's autopilot returns the shield to its original alignment, Canada orders Kappa to safety, and Canada repairs the last panel moments before he's immolated. Trey blames himself for the loss of Canada, and psychiatrist Searle, played by Cliff Curtis, assesses him as a suicide risk, sedating him. Soon afterward, Icarus 2 docks with Icarus 1. Kappa, Searle, Mace, and former communications officer, now Captain, Harvey, played by Troy Garrity, search the vessel, leaving Cassie and Corazon on board Icarus 2. They discover Icarus 1's mainframe has been sabotaged, making its bomb delivery impossible. In the ship's log is a rambling message from Captain Pinbacker, played by ever-villainous Mark Strong, <laughs> who abandoned his mission, the crew of Icarus-1 is found charred to death in the solar observation room, where they were long ago exposed to the unshielded sun. Suddenly, the two ships explosively decouple, destroying Icarus-1's outer airlock, stranding the four crew members on it. 
Mace suggests that one crew member stay behind to manually operate the airlock while the other three jettison between airlocks, using the vacuum release for propulsion. Harvey argues that he should be the one to go back using the only spacesuit available since he is now the acting captain, but the others disagree due to Kappa's expertise being of paramount importance to the mission. After some petty arguments on the part of Harvey, he finally agrees and Searle volunteers to stay behind to enable their escape. Kappa is sealed in the spacesuit while Harvey and Mace wrap themselves in salvaged insulation material to protect them as much as possible for their attempt to jump between the ships from airlock to airlock in the vacuum of space. As Searle had volunteered to sacrifice himself for the others, he stayed behind to release the airlock as his three crew members rocket into space. Harvey misses the airlock on the Icarus II and freezes to death, while Kappa and Mace make it back. Now alone on the Icarus I, Searle, having spent the mission obsessed with looking into the shielded sun, voluntarily exposes himself to the full deadly force in the observation room and dies amongst the crew of the Icarus I. The now devastated botanist Corazon calculates that there is enough oxygen left for four of the five survivors to reach the sun. After a contentious vote, Mace decides to kill Trey, still sedated in sickbay from his suicide risk, but discovers Trey has already committed suicide. With the remaining crew somewhat relieved that they will now at least make the trip to the sun, Kappa is informed by Icarus that there is still not enough oxygen to complete the mission because an unknown fifth person is on board the ship. When Kappa investigates, he discovers an insane and disfigured Pinbacker, the captain from the Icarus One. Pinbacker attacks and wounds Kappa and locks him in an airlock. He then kills Corazon as she is mourning her destroyed garden and removes the mainframe from its coolant bath, shutting down the ship's computer. Mace attempts to manually lower the computer back into the freezing coolant, but when his leg catches on the descending computer, he becomes trapped, and the computer is disabled. As he freezes to death, he radios Kappa to escape the airlock, decouple the bomb from the ship, and activate it as it plummets into the sun. Kappa blows the airlock, separates the bomb from the ship, which then explodes upon its unshielded exposure to the sun, and enters the payload where he finds Cassie. Pinbacker ambushes them, telling them that God had ordered him to send all of humanity to heaven. As they hurtle into the sun, Kappa escapes Pinbacker, reaching the bomb controls. Unsure if it will work under these extreme conditions, he watches as the bomb begins to successfully ignite at the edge of the sun itself. Back on the frozen Sydney Harbor, Kappa's sister witnesses the sun returning to its full power. The end. <laughs> Fiend. Wow, that's a, there's a lot. There's a lot happening in this movie. Yeah, uh, but it's it's actually pretty laser focused on their mission, right? I mean, they do have that side quest, <laughs> you know, where they go to the Icarus One, right? Uh, you know, but it's contentious. You know, uh, I think Chris Evans' character Mace has to say, you know, look, we have to continue on. There's, I know that there is another payload there, but we have to stay laser focused on our goal. If we do not reignite our closest star, all of Earth is essentially dead. So we have to keep going. And of course, they override him because, you know, it's decided that two payloads are better than one. But that's basically the beginning of the end is that decision to go visit the derelict spacecraft, which is, of course, reminiscent of Alien as well. Yeah. And they make comments about that, too. Right. There's lots of homage in this movie. And I'm sure we will 
get to that in discussion. Um, the movie was released in July of 2007 in the United States, released before that in the United Kingdom. It was made on a budget of $40 million and ultimately made $32 million at the box office, unfortunately. So yeah. I don't know if one would consider this to be a flop, right? Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty much a bomb. It's done very well, I think, on home video, in comparison at least. Well, yeah, I mean, it's one of those movies that sort of caught fire Later on, as as it could reach more people, but you saw yeah. this in the theater, didn't you? I saw it in the theater, and I was with I my husband. Remember, yeah, <laughs> before you met him, uh-huh. and I I was walking out, and I remember saying to him that I was like, "This movie is going to be studied," <laughs> and I was right. You know, other than then, it's of course bomb reaction. The film did garner several award nominations for its acting, directing, and production merits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also won an award for best technical achievement for production designer Mark Tilsey from the British Independent Film Awards. Of course, on Rotten Tomatoes. The score is 76%, so it's not too, too high. Uh, But the consensus is fairly positive and reads, Danny Boyle continues his descent into mind-twisting sci-fi madness, taking us along for the ride. Sunshine fulfills the dual requisite necessary to become classic sci-fi, dazzling visuals, and intelligent action. Yeah, I think that the film got mostly positive reviews, right? I mean, 76 is nothing to scoff at. Everything that I read online about its reception has to do with the drastic change in tone at the end of the movie. Yeah, most of the reviewers had a problem with the film. Like, they only had a problem with the ending, uh, which where many found the last reels disappointing because they said that it like quote unquote devolves into a slasher movie mode. I just rolled my eyes, everybody. Yeah. So, and they're like, and one reviewer <laughs> suggested that it might have been added to appease teenage audiences, which is absolute bullshit. Well, is that, was that even their target audience no. anyway? No. I mean, no, this no. movie is not made for teenagers. No. It was to do another homage to like 2001 A Space Odyssey, where at the very end, it kind of inserts a bunch of surreal aspects to Mm -hmm. the movie to like just disrupt the narrative flow a little bit. And it's it's kind of an homage. It, it part of it works, part of it doesn't. The thematic part of it works. The way it was filmed, I still find a little problematic. I can. I don't s- think it quite works. See how people would react that way, especially reviewers or whatever. I mean, because it does. It is kind of a very drastic change. But yeah. I mean, like if you've seen anything that Danny Boyle has made before, it's not unheard of for him to do something like that. I mean, like he he will totally like with train spotting with a baby, you know, yeah. crawling across the ceiling or what he likes to break up the reality. yeah he likes to put in imagery and stuff like that and i i having someone act in a slashery kind of way is not an un, undanny boyle kind of thing to do you know i don't i have no problems with this i thought it you know it actually made the movie a little better i feel so yeah i just i i'm completely fine with everything that happened with pinbacker the captain that comes back from the icarus one right uh he's been exposing himself to the sun because he's got obsessed to it he's kind of the the same the opposite side of the coin as Searle, mm-hmm. who's also obsessed with the sun but Searle is good he sacrificed himself for the crew Whereas this guy got to like a weird religious place, fundamentalist place, which is the theme of this whole right. pinbacker situation. And we'll talk more about that later. Mm. But yeah, it, it, the way it was filmed was kind of like Vaseline on the lens, you know, type of situation. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just so kind of artistically filmed. Like it, t- it didn't really quite work to me. And at first I thought, oh, they just didn't like these makeup effects. So they decided to put add all these camera effects on the guy. No, it was an artistic but choice. No, it I'm was sure, an artistic yeah. choice on the day. Like, like actually planned to do that, to make him so like irradiated from the sun and everything like else. Like a solar flare or something like that. You like know what I mean? he yeah. was like literally like he shouldn't have been alive. Yeah. Type of situation. Well, problem but they like... started blurring the lines of reality a little bit at the end there and that was just the kickoff for that. And we'll talk more about that later. Yeah, we'll get to the slasher but, part for the end. 
let's go back to the beginning though, because I love the visual subversion at the beginning of this film. Like you see the sun in all of its glory, but in a sweeping, like epic shot, you realize it's actually the sun's reflection in this giant, like city-sized solar shield at the front of the Icarus too, and it like sweeps around. You can tell it's a ship heading towards the sun. That's when you see the title uh, "Sunshine," and of course, as the sun hits it, it gets of course immolated. So it kind of sets off the tone right away. Well, and I, I know because I was watching this movie, and I was like, I started it, and that that first opening shot was so enamored by it, and I like rewound it a little bit and watched it again because it's so visually arresting and great yeah. to look at. And then I wrote down in my notes, and I was like, well, that's some Kubrick shit right there. I was just like, yep. yeah, yeah. So. There's three movies uh, or three science fiction films, I should say, that Boyle cited as influences that, of course, include already, we said, 2001 A Space Odyssey and, of course, Ridley Scott's 1979 Alien and, of course, the film Solaris, the original Solaris from 1972. So I can see all three of those films in this one, very much so. The symmetry of Kubrick, uh, some of the themes from Kubrick, you know, Space Odyssey, as well as some of the themes from Alien, you know, and the feeling, claustrophobia. So there's a lot of elements from all of these that is just... uh, I haven't seen the original Solaris or the remake with George Clooney, so I... Don't see the remake. I hated it. I, ha- I mean, I, what's really not high on my list, so but I mean, because I, I, I also heard that that, that movie is like not very good, like has terrible reviews and didn't make any money either, did it? No, so, I saw it yeah. in the theater too and I hated it. <sighs> yeah. Mostly this movie is just tension all the way through from beginning to end. Yeah. But there is one major break, you know, and this film is kind of reminiscent of like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, who of course worked with Kubrick to create 2001 A Space Odyssey. And of course he's the famed, you know, science fiction writer himself. He's like, he wrote the novel, right? Yeah. And so... Um, very famous for Arthur C. Clarke is to have a bunch of characters that don't have petty dramas. They're all dedicated professionals, which is kind of refreshing in a way, but also makes some of his stories a little drier than uh, than others might be because there's yeah. no melodrama. But this is a crew that, you know, argues with each other. They all have their own disciplines, right? But there's a scene where they all kind of sit down together and watch Mercury pass in front of the sun. And I feel like it's a wonderful showcase for the score, uh, as well as, of course, the like I said, the Arthur C. Clarkean quality well, of, for the acting too, of these dedicated professionals putting aside yeah. any differences to witness a beautiful event together, right? In fact, like there are so many, that, that's an awesome, gorgeous shot, right? Uh, but there are a lot of absolutely gorgeous shots in this film, like with Corazon's garden when, she, when that's destroyed by the reflection from the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like encased in the glass hallway. Uh, just beyond the glass is this giant blazing inferno and she's framed perfectly in there like you like you said kubrick and it's just a gorgeous shot it's probably one of my favorite in the film uh i like when they all go to watch mercury pass because i mean after that because right before that point we had seen um mace and kappa sort of fighting about sending a message home because they were about to enter the dead zone right and so i mean there were you cannot live in that kind of close quartered environment for that kind of time with these people and not you know have fights. It's going to happen. It's normal. Yeah, and that's one thing that's a de- departure from Clark, but I think I forgive it. I have to forgive it because he he sent the last message before their communications was lost. Yeah, he, he took uh, his time. Mace whatever. lost his goodbye. Yeah. Like, he couldn't say goodbye and to his sucks. friends or family. And so that's what was taken away. And of course, they're claustrophobic on the ship for months and months and months, if not years. Mm-hmm. And so there was a little fight that broke out, but it was innocent and there was an apology, which I loved that apology. Oh, you're here. So, like, is this you apologizing? I'm trying to apologize, yeah. Kappa. <laughs> He's accepted. Like, is, is that your apology? And he goes, yes. And he goes, accepted. 
Yeah, I mean, they had to, I mean, because they, they had a little tension all the way through this movie, and you have to do that sort of thing for the ending payoff between those two characters. Like, they do clearly respect each other, and they are friends at the they end do. of the day. They do, and Chris Evans... And they respect the mission more. Yeah, Chris Evans did an amazing job at this, and actually, oh, yes. he, he later on said that this is the film that he's most proud of, that but no one saw. I can totally see that, and I know that, I mean, he's like a huge megastar these days, right? And for him to say it like this, go watch this movie, yeah. I think that's very impressive. Um, back to that scene where they're watching Mercury, though, right after that fight that's when you really get to know like how close these characters actually are right mm-hmm. they all sit down and they share this moment together and just like some of the sh- and it's kind of dark in that room because they're trying to showcase the you know mercury on the you know I guess it's the window. Is it an actual window? And it's the observation room because they they can say the sun comes in. Bring the uh you know bring the light filter up to two percent and like that would permanently blind you. Uh-huh. So they're looking at this thing at like 05 percent brightness or whatever in order just to see it, right? Because if it's any higher than that, that close, it would just destroy them. You know, but just the way that scene was blocked in there with like Michelle Yeoh and Rose Byrne like sitting on the floor close to the window, like looking at it, and Michelle Yeoh has this look of just like awe and also like sad on her face right yeah. it's just amazingly beautiful like almost haunting like yeah. I just I loved it so so much oh yeah it's making me cry right now a little and bit then, <laughs> and of course like of course that with uh, Corazon Michelle Yeoh gets to really shine in this film although I just I want more of her in fact the director uh, after her audition said you can have any part you want in this film I don't doubt it because she's amazing in everything that and she, she does and she chose Corazon because and that's a good role. she liked that she was a very nurturing professional but at the same time, like hardline professional, but also very nurturing and empathetic. But as soon as her garden is destroyed, there's nothing left in it for her. Like she gets right. kind of cutthroat and she gets a lot more. Basically, you can tell that she's just kind of dead inside after that. Yeah. And so she got to play that and play it well. And I really liked that she did end on an awesome note because there was one tiny little leaf left, yeah. you know, oh in, amongst the destruction. And she's cradling it in her hands. And you can see that hope and light come back into her eyes. And then she's fucking murdered. She's <laughs> such a good Stabbed actress. in the back by Penbacker. Now, I, I mean, to the, to the point, I mean, I know that I, I read that, that he offered her whatever role. And he said he was willing to change, like, the sexes of characters yeah. in the script to give it to her. And yeah. that that's amazing for a director and writer to make that kind of choice, you know, just based on someone's audition. And, I mean, deservedly so. I think she chose the right character for her. And, I mean... It makes the movie better, but uh, have you seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Of course. Oh my god! So yeah, she's just great <laughs> in everything. I need to watch the new Star Trek series actually because I, I, she's in it somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I always liked her. And back to like the aesthetic scenes of the film. Like, there's one more that I wanted to call out, which is the end of the film. Which maybe I should have waited, but there's like this this moment where he's able to almost like reach out and touch the wall of glowing nuclear flame or the sun right. like there's a side view of him reaching out and then there's a back view it's like completely symmetrical and it's yet another just like awesome view that the that they're giving the audience like a gift wrapped present of cinematography or something like it's just beautiful so there's a lot of scenes like that and those are just like the cherries on top because there's beautiful scenes all throughout this film uh, the the most like visually arresting beautiful scene that I I wrote down in my notes was the very op- the, the opening sequence to their spacewalk to fix the panels mm-hmm. right, and just like the score behind that and just the way that it's shot so slow because I mean they were walking in space obviously right mm-hmm. and like this tension like ratcheting up like constantly so I mean I just I love that section in the movie I think that by far was the, his best like directorial prowess right he just made that. Amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of like the walking slowly in space, that's actually not a thing. <laughs> like he actually tried to make it as scientifically uh, accurate as possible, which there is no slow motion. There's no sound in space, right. all that stuff. But he, he tried it, but it just 
didn't really work uh, with audiences like so he for those scenes. So he had to make it just so that it was as transportive as possible. And sometimes it's stretching it to allow for plot. But he did actually include several scientists, including NASA employees and astrophysicists that were brought in to advise the science of the film, including Brian Cox, a professor of particle physics at the University of Manchester. Uh, There were several inaccuracies, obviously, that were permitted, like I said, to allow for plot. But a lot of the scientific community complained after they saw the film. That was part of the the issue. Brian Cox himself was quoted as saying, Sunshine is not a documentary. It's trying to just, in an hour and 40 minutes, get across a feeling, just a feeling of what it's like, not only to be a scientist, because obviously there's much more to it than that. So I found it interesting to watch the kind of people that get upset because gravity is wrong. And people do that, you know, I mean, like they will just shit all over a movie because you have, you know, a fact wrong or something's not right. Obviously, I'm no scientist, so I don't I don't know. You know, so, I mean, I could easily be transported into a movie like this. And I do that anyway. Like I I have no problems getting lost in a movie, even like really bad ones or even ones that I don't even really want to watch. It's just Mm -hmm. like it comes naturally to me. And so I really hate that some people will like nitpick on crap like that. Beyond the science, there was a lot of technical decisions surrounding like what feelings there would be in the film. Like there was several big decisions that were made to increase the feelings of claustrophobia in the film, including to never cut back to Earth during the film's drama, like you see in like other disaster space movies or mm-hmm. something. They're constantly cutting back, you know, like Deep Impact or um, Armageddon or any of those others. And I don't want to put this in this crowd because I don't view this as a disaster movie. It's no, it's, it's like not high sci-fi drama. You it's know, like it's, an anti-disaster movie, actually. Yeah. And it never cuts back to Earth. And it rarely shows the ship from the outside unless it's absolutely necessary to kind of block the scene. And of course, designing the spacesuits to not only be based on the NASA heat shielding because they're bright gold, they're beautiful to look at but also completely enclose the helmets to give the audience and the actors when they're acting, because they put cameras inside those helmets, the sense of claustrophobia within the scenes. Oh, and it totally works, because when they have those helmets on and they're looking like sweaty and snotty and stuff, and you get those close-up shots a la like Blair Witch Project, yeah, you know what I mean? O- they can only see out through these tiny little slivers right. to protect them. And from it, the I mean, it certainly makes me feel claustrophobic. I can't imagine trying to look at that tiny sliver, but also see little video feeds and stuff around. I'm like, I would just go insane in that suit. That's also one of the reasons why I like this movie very much. I'm usually not the biggest sci-fi fan. I do like sci-fi horror, you know, but... Um, um, I like science fiction movies that are sort of like grounded in reality. Does yeah. that make sense? You know, yeah. like if I have to stop and really think about the technology or how can that possibly work and stuff like that, or like how many different alien beings are we, you know, going to meet and whatnot, I sort of sort of get lost and I, I have to have answers to it. And this is not one of those movies. Everything in, seems so completely plausible to me yeah. that I don't have to stop and question the technology. I don't have to question, you know, the ship itself or anything like that. It just, it totally works. And I also like this movie because so much of science fiction and even science fiction horror has to do with things like colonialism, like we're leaving the planet to go find another one to live. And this is the direct opposite of that. We're leaving our planet to save our planet. It has nothing to do with like divide and conquer or anything like that. We are solely trying to save our own ass. It would have been different if they're like, oh, there's Mercury. Let's go for a closer look and, you know, see what's going on. No, it's like there's Mercury, but we got shit to do, you know, and I respect that as a science fiction movie. That's why they named the ships Icarus and Icarus 2. They're named to give a sense of bleakness to the mission and a sense of humbleness that mankind had in the face of this world saving task at hand. Right. They knew that they were tiny in the face of this. You know, so naming it Icarus was just to remind them, you know, that they are finite. They are mortal. Like, right. I will say 
as an anecdote before I watched the movie, like I knew we were going to watch it. I knew, I knew that my husband had seen it and we were talking and I was just like, and I knew the movie's about going to the sun to save the planet. And I was like, by God, if they name that ship the Icarus, I swear to God, I'm going to throw up. And then, like, having seen the movie, I'm like, that is a good choice. You know, it's all about the hubris of mankind and whatnot. And especially toward the end where it sort of takes a, a turn into religion, you know, and that all sort of makes sense. So. Yeah. And, I have to withdraw that statement. I mean, yeah, if, if a mission failed, Earth and all living creatures would literally, like, freeze to death. So, I mean, of course... For those of you that don't know, and there's probably some of you out there, Icarus is the figure in Greek mythology, which is a morality tale, of course, of the son, I guess, uh, who like tragically died after flying too close to the sun, despite warnings from his father. Mm-hmm. Right? They like wax wings or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So, he falls. It's about like hubris, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a call out to that. So I was actually quite pleased with that. You know, we didn't want to call it like. Apollo 1000 or something stupid <laughs> like that. You know? Yeah. But that's another thing. Back to the claustrophobia and like all of this like really pointed decision making behind all the, the naming conventions and the look of things and how they shot and what they did with editing of never shooting back to Earth, never shooting any scenes on Earth really, except for the very end, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the cinematographer, Alwyn Kuchler, provided an idea to render the interior of the ship all in colors of gray, blue, and green, never anything else. So there's no reference to orange, red, or yellow, right, at all, except for the spacesuits. The scenes were intended to be shot inside the ship at long intervals, and when the shots changed to the outside, the yellow-starved audience would be, like, penetrated by the sunlight, right? right? Uh, the orange and yellow give the outside almost a sense like a dreamlike quality, or even, if you will, a nightmarish one, right? Yeah. So I thought that was a really interesting visual contrast because you don't notice it. It's not like monochromatic, right? You don't really notice it while you're doing it, but your brain, your subconscious, as soon as you're out there in the sun, all of a sudden, you know, there's this contrast of duality as like the sun is depicted as this ever present danger in the film, uh, like almost like a bad guy of the film, like the antagonist in a way, right? They're always like at a seconds away from being completely obliterated, right? That's right. And they, well, they also have the power to let it obliterate them if they but wanted to. But so. it's also the one thing that can that save, save humanity from certain death. <laughs> so it gives the sun a larger role of both a life giver and a life taker, you know, setting up the final themes of fundamentalism and the allusions to God or greater power. Right. No, I like that. So that, that kind of takes us to that quote unquote slasher ending which was uh, designed to be a break in the pattern of realism, like we talked about before, and to give the protagonists a final hurdle or like what I would call a test to mankind. That's how I read it. Uh, like, a, like a kind of symbolism to overcome childish things, like fundamentalism. And I don't think this is an attack on religion because pinbackers actually never really dealt with. They, they don't defeat him. There's no like triumphant revenge scene, you know, or anything where, where Kappa overtakes him, right? He's ultimately just escaped or moved past and ignored in order to follow through with a task at hand, right? So no revenge was attempted. And so Penbacker's actually never dealt with, which is great, in my opinion. Like, he's forgotten. But at the same time, at the end, as time slows down after the bomb starts detonating, to cap his back is the detonating nuclear material, right? And all those pretty stars, you know, like kind of like going off, detonating all these little pieces of the, the bomb, I guess. But in front of him is the sun itself. It's like a call out to this expected result that he was quoted as saying earlier in the film, something like... Um, the mathematics of this accomplishment was ultimately impossible to calculate, right? Mm-hmm. Achieving some sort of space between science and God, per their previous conversation in the film about it. And it's shown very literally, and like we said earlier, beautifully in this moment on the screen, because it's like Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel, where he's reaching out to like touch, quote-unquote, God, touch the or in, the God. Ca- in this case, the sun, before he's presumably burnt to a crisp and the earth is saved. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, he's literally touching out to it as if it's the Sistine Chapel or something. Right. So it's not saying God doesn't exist. and not saying that religion is wrong. It was saying fundamentalism is wrong and rejection of all that is real in science is is wrong. Well, do people actually view this movie as an attack on religion? Because I got the complete opposite, like yeah. what you're saying. I mean, yeah. like, I, I think that, I mean, Pinbacker himself, like everything that comes out of his mouth is talking about a relationship to God. Yeah. Right. And God told me that yeah. I have to send humanity to heaven. That's right. right? So, I mean, like... <laughs> This was my second viewing to prepare for this. I watched it once with Chris. And the first time I was just like, was this like some megalomania going on? But it's not. It's the opposite of that. He doesn't think that he's God, you know. He's had seven years alone right by the sun to sort of like live in commune with God. Yeah. And I think that a lot of these characters are sort of leaning toward the same way. I think that you can't look at something like the sun and not take in some sort of awesome power from it. So we have a character like, you know, Kaneda or, or Cyril who are really starting down that path a little bit and I really love that scene where the captain is, is dying and Cyril is like constantly screaming at him like what do you see what do you see what do you see like obsessed yeah. obsessed with it mm-hmm. and it just makes those characters so incredibly rich and to that point anybody who says that this is not a horror movie before the slasher segments is completely mistaken yeah there's a constant weight and tension of the situation combined with the claustrophobia the crew feels like inside and outside the ship that contribute to that they're always surrounded by the extreme cold vacuum of space as well as like of course the threat of instant death from exposure to the power of the sun constant danger yeah constantly and of course when entering the first ship Icarus 1 every time their flashlights pass the lens of the camera you see the faces of the crew who died there at first you wonder if you're seeing things like I remember that feeling in the theater like did I just see something yeah right and I remember asking you after you watched it the first time you're like I thought my mind was playing tricks on me for yeah, a second yeah I did it's very subliminal it's yeah. neat and then you realize you are seeing the dead crew and not only that they are walking through their bodies as the, as the dust that coats everything that's right and there is alluded to be the dust and ashes from their corpses it is so powerful just those few flickers you know what I mean again I'm starting to cry a little bit thinking about it I mean like <laughs> this movie is just a masterpiece visually you know it's so good he makes all the right choices in this movie like Danny Boyle you're like my new fucking hero I swear to god um let's talk about the slasher elements for a little bit yeah right because I mean that's that's really what sort of divides people on this movie I like it and it is very traditional slasher pacing formula all of it yeah right my my biggest concern while watching it I did love that moment where the ship was like because there was one more crew member than you had counted for. Or oh, whatever. I know. And that's just like this, like, what the fuck moment? I know. It's like, holy shit. So, and I mean, I sort of knew that it is, I mean, as they say, quote unquote, devolves into a slasher movie, but I wasn't expecting it to be so kind of tense, right? What I noticed and what started to bother me. It ascends it, into a slasher movie. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so I was getting really bothered during this part of the movie, not because it's a slasher, but because it was so formulaic. So he comes and murders Corazon, right? As she's cradling that plant. And it's just a wonderful scene and a very, very sad death. But that's not the first person he killed because it eludes. Because they're all drawing straws to kill the guy that basically was blaming himself for the first problem, Trey. Yeah. And he's still sedated or whatever in there. And they find him dead. Like he had killed himself, right? Chris Evans goes and Mace goes in to kill him, do the job while he's sedated or whatever. And he goes and looks for those knives. The scalpel, yeah. The, the like electro scalpels or uh-huh. whatever. And there's like already two missing, right? So you know that Pinbacker's been there after a rewatch of the film. And so it's eluded that it's possible at least 
that Pinbacker actually went in there and made it look like a suicide. See, I didn't him. get that. I don't think that he – it's not really in his MO. If he was going to kill somebody, he was just going to flat out kill them. Yeah. I really think – because there was one scene where they're having a discussion. Was it his wrists that were – His wrists were cut. Okay, yeah. so he but did kill himself. I really – I think I remember, and I, I may be wrong, but I think there was a scene post him being sedated. Like he had woken Drain, up. Yeah. yeah. And he comes to the bridge, and they're having a conversation. And he sort of hears it in private, makes a face, and then it cuts away to him like leaving. I assume that he killed himself. And maybe he came in there and saw it was like, well, there's one less person I have to kill and took a scalpel. Yeah. The thing to me is, is that so he murders Michelle Yeoh, Corazon, and then he goes after Cassie, Rose Byrne. Yeah. And I was just like, and the two men at this point are doing very heroic things. Right. So like, I'm going to go detonate this bomb and I'm going to save these computers in the coolant. And I was just like, my God, I was like, is he just going to kill the women? Is it this kind of slasher? Right. Mm, yeah. And so by the end of the movie, I love that surprise when Pinbacker's there and, you, you know, he's trying to kill Kappa and Cassie shows up and sort of like jumps over the side of the bomb plummets to what I assume is both of their deaths. And I was like, well, finally a woman gets to have some sort of heroic moment and not just get like slashed to death by this guy. Yeah. She survived. She was, you know, yeah. So, I mean, but that was a whole cat and mouse scene. Like she was hiding from him and it's super tense and it's very, very slasher. It's very alien. Right. Yeah. So I, all that, very, all that. Oh Yeah. Well, yeah, Danny Boyle outdid himself with this film, and he, of course, found sci-fi so exhausting, he vowed never to do it again. So we will never get another sci-fi movie from Danny Boyle. (laughs) Well, if you have to go out on one, I mean, this is the one to do it. The thing is, I mean, like, I think that he puts this kind of energy in every movie that he makes. A Danny Boyle movie looks like a Danny Boyle movie, and I've never seen one that I did not like. Yeah, okay. Shallow Grave is, like, one of his first movies, right? Mm. So he's no stranger to anything that's, like, a thriller or horror-oriented. And even Trains spotting itself has got some nice horror elements to it 127 hours definitely tense and very scary so i mean like he knows how to craft a very tense visually pretty movie and i mean like academy award winner now at this point too so i'm glad yeah Yeah. so there's some fun facts that i have or did you want to um all that i have in my notes really was you know about like trey's death and the because he killed himself in that that room that people oh, use, like right? the holodecky kind of thing. Yeah, and that's yeah. what I wrote. I was like, "Oh, Trey, now no one's gonna want to use the holodeck." She's <laughs> <Just laughs> like, "God." And then I know Chris Evans is so good in this movie, and he delivers his lines well. And I mean, not to mention he's like gorgeous, and he gets so preachy. And he had like part. a really heroic death too. Yeah, like I mean, he is amazing. killing himself in this sub freezing water to try and like uh, repair this computer or whatever. Yeah, it was heroin. And the last thing he can do is message Kappa and he says, no matter what, you have to get out of that airlock. You have to do this. You have to complete the mission. You know, and then he dies while he's basically on the radio with him. You know, and most of the deaths in this movie are kind of like neat. You know, I know that's bad to say. Different. They're all very different. Yeah. But when Harvey dies in space and you see his body freezing and like pieces breaking off. You see someone incinerated. You see someone frozen to death. Like Like, two opposite ends of the spectrum. And they're both like just so stabbed to to death. And then, you know. And those scalpels are horrible. They're like motorized scalpels, right? I'm like, shit. What the fuck (laughs) kind of doctor uses that? Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's all that I had. So, I mean, Lay some facts on me because these are always fun. So, of course, I already mentioned the Michelle Yeoh's audition, which is a fun fact for me, where she got to pick whatever role she wanted. And I think she picked well. 
yeah. you can tell that she could have been the captain, she could have been Kappa or whatever, but she wanted to play. She thought this character was very interesting and and that she would do it well. And I thought she really, really did. I'd like to see a version of this film where every character is played by Michelle Yeoh. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> I mean, like twinsies. Because she, she, she grounds every character that she plays, you know, and it's just so believable and, and lovely. Yeah. Well, okay. So this was interesting to me and it's probably just above and beyond nerd stuff, but oh Lord, a lot of people were saying, well, the sun's not going to die for like six billion years or something, you know, it's going to expand and there's going to be like the, you know, it's going to, incinera- it's actually going to incinerate the earth because yeah. it's going to expand so much as it loses, you know, fuel or whatever. So, but that's actually not what happened. So there was originally like a prologue to this where it doesn't actually revolve around the sun dying in the normal sense. Now this is, of course, that's not due for like 5 billion years, like I said, based on our understanding of nuclear fusion at least, but it has instead been infected with a quote unquote cue ball. <laughs> Which is the scientist-loving term for a supersymmetric nucleus left over from the Big Bang, which is a theoretical particle, right? Uh-huh. When this enters a star or something like that, it essentially disrupts the normal matter. So it's a theoretical particle that scientists at CERN are currently trying to confirm and was one of the many contributions of the scientific advisors. The film's bomb is meant to blast the cue ball to its constituent parts, which will then naturally decay, allowing the sun to return to normal. So this is a particle that has entered the sun that has weakened its ability to perform nuclear nuclear fusion and basically you know it's disrupted the engine of the sun essentially so it's not trying to say it's dying like from age or anything it's dying from something like that happened outside of it everything that you just said just flew completely right yeah. over my head so just, yeah sorry. i get it no 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 it's fine i mean i know i know you love those things and i'm just trying really hard to understand what it all means but also there's an interesting hashtag me too moment from this film that has just come to light recently oh really so in an interview in 2018 when promoting his uh, his film annihilation alex garland of course the screenwriter revealed that the character of harvey you know the co-pilot or whatever that became the captain essentially was actually named after harvey weinstein <laughs> Due to his often rude and snappy attitude to the other crew members and arrogant superiority complex, Danny Boyle thought it'd be funny to pay homage to Weinstein in this way after Harvey had been difficult with the handling of the U.S. release for train spotting back in 1996 and tried to cut out some of his more disturbing scenes. Oh, that's great. So they named the like the most contentious, like bullyish, uh, like <laughs> character after Harvey Weinstein. So, I so think people that's... have been hating Harvey Weinstein for years, apparently. Yeah, it's all over the place. So <laughs> I want to talk about before we move on to the final questions the very very end of this movie okay do you find it to be ambiguous or do you think there was a clear message oh i saw the sun brighten so did i too and i mean that's what i thought and i didn't know if that was just like like you said a particularly sunny day i mean that's what i really i took no you see the shadow like leave the ground like it's a distinct okay good because i i mean i thought i was just like okay i'm getting a happy ending here and that well, I mean, a tragic happy Yeah, there's ending. no, like, I love that there's no crowds in New York, you know, Times Square, right. just, like, jumping up and down watching a newsreel, right? It's something as simple as his sister and, and his sister's kids. daughter and yeah. her kids, like, basically standing on this ice outside of, you know, in Australia, outside of Sydney. Where it's supposed to be, like, sunny and beautiful all the time, You know, right? exactly. Yeah. And, then, and then the sun just, like, booms across this landscape. And it's just as simple as this mother and this daughter watching this happen. And I love that. 
Because I was talking to a friend. And it's also friend. the opposite of claustrophobia because there's this gigantic open, space. So open with yeah. just the opera house in the background. It's beautiful. I was talking to a friend and she was just like, yeah, I feel it's a little ambiguous. Like maybe the bomb didn't work or I mean the payload, what do they always call it? And I was just like, ooh, no, I completely disagree. Like I yeah. think that's a clear message of hope at the end of this movie. You know, I was just like, nobody in the world would give you a movie this tense and fraught with danger the entire time. Not to mention people getting picked off one by one at the end and not give you a glimmer of hope. That'd be a real fucking dick move. So yeah, yeah I'm glad that you agree with me. I think that I think it's perfect. Yeah, it's not one of those movies. It's not a Bruce Willis <laughs> movie <laughs> where it cuts back to all those throngs of crowds cheering and like frothing at the mouth. No, right? No, <laughs> thank thank God. There's no no papers and NASA flying in the air. You know. <laughs> <laughs> So here at the Film Flamers, we have some questions we like to ask about every movie. And one of those is, do you think this is a horror film? And as of late, the answer has always been just a dedicated yes, because we have been covering so much horror. However, our listeners know that if there's anything we love more than a horror movie, it's a horror-adjacent movie. Yeah. So, Chris, is Sunshine a horror film? Yeah, and, you know, we've talked a lot about this, and there's so many things that make horror. You know, there's obvious popcorn horror, right? Right. But then there is horror, there's something that has horror elements, Mm -hmm. and then you get into horror-adjacency, where this whole movie is fraught with tension. Yes. There's an enemy or an antagonist, either symbolically or physically, you know, either in a person or an object or one constantly yeah. around them, mm-hmm. their own psyches, like everything is a, is, you know, basically a, you know, a potential horror movie slasher, you know, yeah. and, and it's, it's just constant and you can see the weight of the task and the tension, you know, and the weariness, you know, the weariness, I should say, in all of these astronauts eyes and everything from all of this just being beat down with all this responsibility and this fear and this anxiety and this tension and the and this hope dashed and everything else. And so that in itself is a horror. I mean, of course, if it, if it wasn't already right, it ends in much more of a straight horror as far as that right. quote unquote slasher element. Yeah. And so in one way or another, or in all ways, you can say that this has a lot of horror weaved into the DNA of this film. I mean, it's like you're reading my mind because I was going to say the exact same thing. I know what what I like about movies that have a lot of horror elements is that there's always this fear, fear of like something in front of you, fear of the unknown, things like that. And that's what these characters are facing every single day. They don't know that they're going to make it back home alive ever. They don't know that their mission is going to be successful. Like every day is constant fear on top of, you know, the actual, you know, forces working against them all the time. And so I think that any movie that is going to openly discuss fear in that case has to be labeled at least horror horror adjacent right so many elements like that were you scared watching sunshine yeah i mean like it's there's so many different flavors of scared right there's not really jump scares per se in this film at least i don't remember that uh but as far as being on the edge of my seat and like you know clutching my popcorn to my chest like Uh it's a little dolly yeah (laughs) probably like especially on the first viewing it's very tense yeah yeah, so I would I would definitely say that you know if tension and stress and anxiety are uh, flavors of of scared adjacency. Yeah, because again, like you're taking the words right yes. out of my mouth. I mean, exactly. I was going to say that I didn't feel, and I oftentimes listeners get very 
physically and noticeably scared when I watch horror movies. I'm a grown man and I've seen so many. And there are some movies I get scared at every single time that I watch them. Like I will scream out loud. But I definitely think that tension and like, you know, white knuckling your armchairs, things like that is like a, a total version of being scared. Because I mean, half this movie I was clutching my pearls and like, <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, you know? So yeah, I mean, if, I think that if you're on the edge of your seat for like a good 90% of a movie, you can say you're scared, right? Yeah. So at least in some way or another. Uh, finally, and someone consider most important, who's the hottest guy in Sunshine? We all know who that is. I have a tie. Really? Yeah. I can't. I cannot pick between these two. Well, mine is solidly Chris Evans. Yeah. He's one of mine. I like. Yeah. He's so pretty. Mace. Mm-hmm. And every time he says, deliver the payload in this movie, <laughs> I was just like, okay. <laughs> we have a payload to deliver to our nearest star. You certainly do. <laughs> I'm your star. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Chris Evans is quite the hottie. However, I am deeply, madly in love with Cliff Curtis. I just uh, think he's just the, the ship's counselor that was obsessed with... Yeah. The son. So he's of like Maori descent from New Zealand, right? He's just he's just so pretty. And I loved him in Fear the Walking Dead. And yeah, it's just that he had like these these uh sunburn scabs on his face. And he's like picking at it half yeah. the time. And I'm like, but he's always wearing those really sexy aviator glasses while he's picking at his skin. I was like, I can you know disregard why? all that. Do you know why he was wearing those? Because he was going blind. No, because he had to leave halfway through the film because his father died. Oh, he had my to go God. Back. Really? And so they had to use doubles and they used those big giant sunglasses for off shots so that when he did pickups, he had to have those sunglasses in. And stuff. Holy shit. That's so, yeah. really sad, actually. So he had come back later, but he had to abruptly change. So he, they had to use him in long shots and stuff well, with a double. Had I been there, I would have most definitely comforted him through his loss. Yes. So I love Chris Curtis. Yeah. Fear the Walking Dead is a great show. Whether you whether you, whether you like The Walking Dead or not, Fear the Walking Dead is magnificent. Okay. So check it out, definitely. Well, guys, I think that sort of wraps up our conversation about Sunshine. I know that we really enjoyed our foray into science fiction horror, and I know that we're going to be revisiting it again. But before we leave out, we have just a couple of announcements for things that are upcoming. Join us next week when we continue our conversation about horror sci-fi, and when we count down our top 10 favorite sci-fi horror films. Yeah. And uh, next month, we're going to be continuing a conversation into horror adjacency, because it is Pride Month in June, and we are talking about about the Hitchcockian LGBT thriller, Stranger by the Lake. I'm so excited. I've never seen it. I have not seen it either. It's a first viewing for both of us, so this conversation is one not to be missed, everybody. I really hope it's good. (laughs) I hear there's a lot of sex in it, so at the very least, we should be titillated and not even like to say that word out loud. Please don't. Yeah. (laughs) Other than that, guys, please let us know what you think about Sunshine. Have you seen it? How much do you love it? Please tell us. Tell us what you think about our conversation. Yeah, let us know with your voice. That's right. You can leave us a voicemail on our Film Flamers hotline at 972-666-7733. Yeah, leave a voicemail and you will almost assuredly be heard on our next Shooting the Flames episode. That's right. If you're shy and don't want to, you can always reach out to us on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter and Facebook, or you could send us an email. Tired Queens at filmflamers.com. That's right. 
And if you're looking for even more Film Flamers content, head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers and check out all of our bonus episodes. We have tons of sequel ideas and trails of a scene where we talk about, you know, scenes from our formative horror past and sort of dissect them for you. And there could be even more bonus content coming up. You can get all of that for as little as $2 a month. Um, Yeah. And you'll be able to listen to all of our episodes, sometimes weeks in advance. That's right. Some of these were posted at least three weeks in advance. So go on over and check that out, guys. As always, we appreciate all the love and support. We love talking to y'all on social media. We love getting your comments and questions. And, you know, you can always leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whichever you prefer to call it. But I think that's pretty much it. So until next month when we visit that lake with those strangers. Sweet dreams. Let the sun shine. (laughs) But before we drift off to sleep, we'll leave you with some of John Murphy's Canada's Death Part 2 or Adagio in D minor. (laughs) (laughs) So peaceful. Sweet dreams. In space. No one can hear you dream. Let the sun shine.